seated and open up your Bibles to the very last chapter of Joshua. At long last, we've come to the final chapter in Joshua, this series that we started back in January. Uh, it's a book that I've never taught through or preached through before. And I've got to tell you, I've thoroughly enjoyed the journey. This has been a delight. Um, I am, however, excited to wrap it up. All right? and, and we'll actually take this week and next to do that. Um, excited to wrap it up. Excited about where we're going Next, where we're going after Joshua, and I'll give you a little bit more about that in a few moments. But for now, the question is, how does Joshua end? Because endings are important. Chapter 24 is, in essence, Joshua's dying words. His famous last words, if you will. Um, are they important? Are they worth hanging on to? I think we'll find that they absolutely are. What we have in 24 is very similar to what we saw in 23 uh, when we were last in Joshua together. And from 23, I talked to you about the shift that often occurs in Scripture. The shift that occurs from the indicative to the imperative. When we move from God's blessing and from His grace into how He then expects us to live in light of that blessing and grace. And I talked to you about the fact that the order of those two things is crucial. The indicative coming before the imperative. The blessing of God coming before the expectation of God. That we never obey in hopes that God might bless us, but that our obedience rightly flows out of having already been the beneficiaries of His grace. Now, I won't rehearse that whole thing, but it's important. If you weren't here, I guess that was three weeks ago, um, listen to the podcast. It's an, it's an important concept that we've got to get right, this indicative, this, this notion of blessing or grace preceding God's expectation for our behavior, for our obedience, and one fueling the other. That's important. We can't miss that. Luckily, we have it again in chapter 24 as a, as a way of refresher. We've got these great hinge verses in the middle that show us that shift from God's blessing to His expectation of our behavior, His expectation of our living. We've got these great hinge verses in the middle, probably one of the most famous imperative statements, certainly of Joshua, if not of all of Scripture. It's probably hanging somewhere in some of your houses on a cute little plaque somewhere, right? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, right? Um, We've got the, these notions of fearing Him, of serving Him. These are the imperatives. These are the commands. These are the expectations of God's people. But they only ever come after and in response to God's grace. 
And that's what the first 13 chapters of chapter 24 are. That's what we're going to look at this morning. This is the fuel, this is what enables the fearing and the serving that we're called to and that we'll look at more in depth next week. But for the time being, let's look at the indicative. Let's look at the grace. Let's look at the blessing. And so I'd like to ask you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. The first 13, chapters of chapter, first 13 verses of chapter 24. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers in chariots, with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, He put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you and I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites, it was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. This is God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray together. Oh God, there aren't words eloquent enough. There aren't human arguments that I could craft that could ever do what Your Spirit and Your Word alone can do. And so that's what we have to depend on this morning. So come Holy Spirit. Illumine this Word that You inspired. Illumine it to our understanding. Where our minds are dark, would You enlighten them? Where our hearts are hard, would You soften them? Where our ears listen but don't really hear, would You help? 
Would you come and help and have your way with us this morning? Would you help us to see clearly your grace and your blessing that it might be forever for us fuel, fuel to fear you and to serve you and to obey you all the days of our lives. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. The imperatives always come after the indicatives. Obedience always flows from grace, never in hopes of receiving grace. If this is true, and I'm confident from the Scriptures that it is, then we have got to be students of His grace. We've got to remember all His gracious acts. We've got to recount them to ourselves and to each other. We've got to be able to recognize God's graciousness to us in the past and in the present. And if we look closely at these verses, I think they will help us to that end. I've got several observations to make about the graciousness of our God Observations that will help us all in our shift from the indicative to the imperative. From how we've been blessed and graced to how then we ought to live. First observation, they're listed in your worship folder for you. First observation about our gracious God is that He keeps His promises. We're reminded of His faithfulness to keep His promises uh, in two ways in this passage. What's described in this chapter is actually a type of ceremony. Some of your English translations will actually even put a little, uh, a little heading. It's a, it's a covenant renewal or a covenant renewal ceremony. God has entered into a covenant relationship with His people and from time to time, we've already seen it once in the book of Joshua, I believe it was back in chapter 8, we need a, a renewal, if you will. We need a reminding We need to be reminded of who God is who has entered into this relationship with us. And we need to be reminded from time to time of our responsibilities in that covenant relationship. And so we have both of those here, both halves of that. We're looking essentially at the first half this morning. A reminder of who God is and what He's done. His role in not only establishing this covenant with us, but keeping it up and running despite our uh, sins and failures and weakness. It's important that we look to see where this ceremony happens. Look in verse 1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to where? To Shechem. Now what's the big deal about Shechem? Is that important? Does it have any significance? Yes, of course it does. Uh, And I want us to turn to Genesis 12 for a moment and look at the first six verses of Genesis 12 because it's going to help us not only with Shechem but with a few other things that we're going to see in this passage. It's going to give us some background and some context. Genesis 12, starting in verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. See, that sounds like indicative to me. Okay? I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So 
Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, ding, 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 to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So the ceremony happens in Joshua 24 at Shechem. You see, what's happened here is they've come full circle. They've come back to the place that the promise was made, where God promised Abram a land and a people, and they've been on quite a wild ride ever since. But here they are, and they're back at Shechem. Here they are back at this spot. Abram's great, 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 great grandchildren have gathered again some 600 years later in the very land that God promised. He's faithful. He's faithful to His Word. We see it again in this passage further down in verse 11. All these ites get mentioned again, right? Here are all the ites that I defeated for you and gave you their lands. I'm not going to say them again. Once is plenty, right? But there they are, right? It's the same exact list, though a different order, that we saw way back in chapter 3. So that must have been like February or something. Before they even crossed the Jordan River, God said, I'm going to give you those seven ites and their lands, I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to give you their land. And lo and behold, some 21 chapters later, it's a done deal. Every single word of His promise has been fulfilled. Not a single thing failed to come to pass. Part of God's grace to His people is that He is faithful, always faithful to do what He promised. We can take Him at His word. Now, second observation that I'll make about God's graciousness. Our gracious God takes the initiative. All right, so thinking back to this Genesis 12 that we just read, how exactly did it come to pass that God made this promise to Abram in the first place? Was it that God was out there and he was looking, he was looking for a good guy? He was saying, man... Where's somebody I can use? Where's somebody who seems to have it all together? Or maybe where is someone that's looking for me? Where is someone that's saying, Hey, God, I'm here. I'm ready to join your team. I'm ready for you to use me. Is that how it happens? Not exactly. In our passage in Joshua, look at verses 2 and 3. Joshua said to all the people, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, and they served other gods. They weren't giving me the time of day. They weren't aware of my existence. They were pagans. They were idolaters. But then, one day, God comes along and He takes 
Abram. You see that in verse 3. Then I took your father Abraham. He wasn't seeking God. He wasn't volunteering for service. You see, it's God who takes the initiative. It's God who shows up and takes a pagan, idol-worshipping guy from a pretty poor pedigree of pagan idol worshipers. And he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take you and I'm going to do all this. I mentioned earlier to you, I'm excited about where we're going after Joshua. We're going to begin a, a several week study of what it means to be born again. Is something I've been feeling for a long time. We ought to look at that. I just kept coming to places over and over in Scripture, in different things I was reading, different articles. I was thinking, yeah, I think so. And then lo and behold, John Boyd comes in uh, these past two weeks and, and preaches to you from John 3. And I'm like, okay, Lord, if I needed any more confirmation, we're going to talk about what it means to be born again. We're going to look at the initiative God takes in our salvation of bringing the dead to life of, of moving by his spirit not in response to anything we could do and, and i'm looking very much forward to it this is very much what happened to to abram minding in his own business not giving god the time of day and god shows up and he takes him much like Saul who became the Apostle Paul, right? Hell-bent on his own way and on his own path, and then, bam, God comes and He takes him. God's grace takes the initiative. It shows up and it says, you're mine now. It's what a God of grace does. He takes the initiative. Third observation. Our gracious God also takes His sweet time. Very often. Very, very often. Um, I'm not sure if you realized it when we read these verses, but in just a few short verses, an economy of words, we covered like 600 years of history. It, it reads real quick, right? Especially like verse 3, for example. Right? Verse 3, we've got a lot compressed into a few, few words. Verse 3, where'd you go? Come back to verse 3. There it is. No. That's okay. I've got verse 3 down here if I can read it. All right. Then I, listen to this. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan, Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. Bang, bang, bang. It just sounds like that happened, you know, just in a, a matter of moments. Right? But you know the story you know that in actuality there was a, quite a bit of anxious waiting. There was even a bit of uh, sinful taking things into your own hands and trying to manufacture what God had promised to do. As we recount God's grace, as we try to recognize His grace, we need to be careful because sometimes the timing of things can be a little tricky. Sometimes the timing of God fulfilling His promises 
can lead us to doubt. It can trick us into thinking, maybe He's not faithful. Maybe He's not being gracious. We need to remember that He sometimes takes His sweet time. And this really leads into this next, this fourth observation. Sometimes God's timing is but one of His mysterious ways in which He operates. Our gracious God does often have mysterious ways. He's got a very creative toolbox when it comes to being gracious. He's got many things at His disposal. Three of the mysterious things, four if you count the timing, but three more just from this passage alone. Adversity, sin, and even our enemies can be used as tools of His grace. Adversity, sin, and enemies. Let's look at verse 4. How mysterious. Uh, And so to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And so these represent in essence two peoples that come from these two sons. One is a people of blessing. And one is a people of the opposite of blessing. Okay? But it's to the people that are not recipients of God's blessing that get the inheritance of land first. Did you see that? To Esau I gave the land of Seir as their inheritance. And what does God give to his people of blessing? Um, He gives them Egypt. He gives them 400 years of captivity. Of slavery. Now friends, that is a mysterious way, if there ever was one. We may not always understand how God is in fact being gracious through adversity. Though sometimes we do get a few clues Sometimes we recognize how the adversity perhaps shows us a part of God's character that we would not have seen otherwise. I think there are a few who could, even in this room, testify to that. How can we celebrate Him as Redeemer and Rescuer if we didn't at some point need to be rescued and redeemed from something. Friend, don't be tempted to think that adversity is the absence of God's grace. Because very often it's the vehicle by which His grace arrives. Please don't lose that. Please don't lose that. When adversity comes, the temptation is strong. It's strong to say, God, you have forsaken me. You have forgotten me. You are not being faithful to your promises. When very, very often it's that adversity that actually is bringing the grace of God with it. Now, so that's adversity. That's a mysterious way. What about sin? How can God bring His grace through through our own sin and and failure. Look at the end of of verse 7. 
when they, they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. Your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And here's this interesting little phrase at the end. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Well, that's a nice way of putting it. Without going into all the gory details of what we were on the brink of in Numbers, of the rebellion that you will read about tomorrow, even in Numbers 14, that led to their living in the wilderness a long time. Why were they in the wilderness a long time? Because of their rebellious, unbelieving hearts. That's why. But even their sin could not derail God's plan. Even their sin could not derail God's heart to be gracious to them. Because we've already seen, verse 1, they end up back at Shechem. They end up back right where they're supposed to be by God's grace by His providence, by His protection, by His leading and providing. Here they are in the promised land and what a comfort to us that ought to be. That though they suffered for their rebellion in the wilderness, God was faithful and He brought them through and He blessed them along the way and He continued to reveal Himself to them even as they wandered through the wilderness. Grace continues to be grace. Adversity is a mysterious way. Sin is a mysterious way. But even our enemies are no match for God's graciousness. And that's what we see in verses 9 and 10 of this chapter. It's making reference to an event that we will soon get to in Numbers as well. Numbers 22 through 24. And so because we're going to get to it in all of its details soon enough, I'm not going to hash out all the details for you. But suffice it to say, because of God's amazing power and His unstoppable desire and determination to bless His people that no enemy can stand in the way. No enemy is strong enough. He is so bent on blessing His people that God here even takes an enemy who wants to curse his people and forces that enemy to bless his people instead. That's what happens at the end of this account. The end of verse 10, I would not listen to Balaam, he says, indeed, he blessed you. How frustrating that must have been for their enemies. How frustrating to want to curse a people and to open your mouth and out comes a blessing because God is so bent on blessing His people. Mysterious ways indeed. Now, here's what I think is a key to trying to make sense of some of these mysterious ways because, y'all, in the middle of it, it's hard to make heads or tails of what is going on and, and why God may have brought about this adversity of how God might continue to, to bring about His purposes even though I've blown it and I've sinned, of how He might bring about His grace and His blessing though I've got these enemies attacking me, here's what I think is 
God is often doing. Here's the key to understanding this. He's very often trying to get us into a position of weakness. He is very often purposefully getting us in between a rock and a hard place. That's how He very often does things. Now, oftentimes we end up in between that rock and that hard place because of our own sin. Right? We are happy, it seems, to help God out in getting us to that weak spot, that desperate place. But sometimes it's through no fault of our own and God still wants us there. Sometimes it's the Egyptians chasing us right up to the Red Sea to a dead end where there's no way out to where we can only say, Oh God, help. And in that moment, He has us exactly where He wants us. That's what He's doing with these mysterious ways. Bringing us to the end of our resources. Bringing us to the end of our abilities, to the end of our schemes and our plans, where He alone is our only hope. Where He's all we've got to cling to. Where His power gets perfected in our weakness. Paul sure understood that. Bringing us to places again and again where He gets the glory. And that leads us to our final observation this morning. Our gracious God meets our every need and even wording it like that just it just sounds like an understatement. I couldn't come up with a way to, to label or name this final observation strongly enough because this is something we've so desperately got to wrap our hearts and our minds around. And God knew that. God knew that we needed to have our hearts and our minds wrapped around the fact that He provides our every need start to finish He initiated the grace where he plucked Abraham out. And he met him at every point from there on. And he will bring him all the way to the end. He supplies every single need from A to Z. And you and I desperately need to be reminded of that. Of his graciousness, of his goodness, of the fact that he has done it all. Right? If we've seen anything in Joshua over and over and over again, it is God's use of the personal singular pronoun. I. I've done it. I'm going to give them into your hand. I'm going to give you this land. I've done it. I will do it. I will fight for you. I, I, I. And he he just seems to, at the end of these verses, just to really put a fine point on things. The end of verse 12, end of verse 13. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. God is so deliberate in this repetition. He knows how badly we need it. 
And this isn't just ego on God's part. He knows we need these realities firmly planted in our hearts and our minds that He has met our every single need from start to finish and that He's done it well, that He's done it abundantly. And there's nothing else we could possibly add to it. There's nothing else that we could possibly need. And see, God knows that being firmly convinced of that is our only hope. Because see, if we're supposed to fear Him, if we're supposed to serve Him, the things that we're getting to next week, if we're supposed to love Him above all else, if we're supposed to love Him heart and soul and mind and strength and then to love our neighbor as ourself, right? He knows that before any of that can happen, first, we've got to realize and be firmly convinced of how very well we've been loved. of how thoroughly our every need has been met by Him and Him alone without us lifting a finger, without us contributing a thing to His grace. We've got to realize how He spared no expense and how He gave absolutely all that He had to give. That will only ever be the fuel that we need for our obedience. That will only ever be the thing that enables our obedience and our fearing Him and our serving Him is to realize that He did not spare anything, not even His only Son. It's that recognition that Paul had there in Romans 8.32. He spared not His own Son, but He gave Him for us then how is He not going to give us everything else we need? And if you look closely at those surrounding verses in Romans 8, those verses that surround Romans 8.32, it's not necessarily stuff that He's promising to give us along with Christ, but it's our sanctification. It's our growth in godliness. It's our ability to obey and to fear and to serve. That's what He's going to give to us along with Christ. He spared not His Son. He gave Him up for us all. He'll graciously give us all things. Let's pray. God, I pray and I trust that looking at these 13 verses separately from Your commands and Your expectations will be beneficial. that You by Your Spirit will firmly lodge them in our hearts and our minds as the fuel that we need to fear You as we should, to serve You as we ought, to love You above everything else. Lord, by the working of Your grace, through the power of Your Spirit, the power of Your Word, Accomplish that which You desire. Make us who You want us to be. Lead us into places of service to others that You long for us to serve. Pray all these things in Christ's name. For His sake, Amen. Let's stand and sing in response together.